You've got this, gonna rock this Ain't nobody gonna stop you from living the life that you choose You're confident, you're fearless Don't question your spirit You're the only one who's gotta walk in your shoes You've got the tools, you're not alone You've always been your baby's home Bring them into the world in your own Bring them into the world in your Welcome to the launch of the No Fear Home Birth Podcast. In this inaugural episode, I'll be sharing the story of my first birth. In this episode, I'll talk about miscarriage, the cascade of interventions, how birth doesn't always go to plan, and so much more. I'm your host, Megan R. Cooper, and before we get into my birth story, I'm going to answer a listener question about what questions to ask home birth midwives during interviews. But before I answer, a quick announcement. Throughout the rest of this month, December 2023, to celebrate the launch of this podcast, you'll have the opportunity to earn over $150 in prize giveaways. To be entered to win, all you have to do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, and then fill out a super quick survey to let me know that you did. The link is in the show notes. My goal is to get this podcast into the hands of more mothers around the globe so they can become aware of their options when it comes to home birth and feel fully informed, unconditionally supported throughout their home birth journey, and completely prepared for their home birth in body, mind, and spirit. The best way to accomplish that mission is by listeners leaving five-star reviews so that this podcast will be recommended to more mamas just like you. So take a minute to pause, go leave a review, and then hop right back in. Now, without any further ado, let's get into today's question. It's from M, who writes, I just found out I'm pregnant with baby number two. Our first was a C-section due to breach presentation. I was so frustrated with the quote-unquote support of the providers that I put my trust in, and I'm very hesitant to have anything to do with the hospitals for birthing. My dream is to have an HBAC, but it's been difficult finding midwives in my state who will assist an HBAC without a proven VBAC. I found three all over an hour away that I'm going to book a consultation with. I'm looking for questions to ask them to help me find the right fit and feel comfortable with them, but I also realize at this point I can't be too picky. But also, I don't want to be duped again. What are some questions I can ask to help me find the right support? So thanks for that question, M. And before I answer, I'll just give my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only, aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice, and don't constitute a provider, patient, or coach-client relationship. Also, this is just my take as one home birth professional, and I hope you'll seek other perspectives and consult your own intuition as well. First of all, M, I am so sorry that you feel like you didn't have the right support with the providers that you had with your first birth. For the listeners who may not know what an HBAC or VBAC are, HBAC is an acronym that stands for Home Birth After Cesarean, and VBAC 
stands for vaginal birth after cesarean. I had an H back myself and it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. I'm a huge, huge advocate, of course, for home birth. And it really is so important to find the right care for your birth. Okay. And when you say that you want to find the right fit and feel comfortable, but you also realize you can't be too picky, you can be too picky. If there's any time ever to be picky, it's now. Okay. Now, when you are talking about birth, this is your time to get really clear on exactly what it is you want and really vocal about that. You have to be your biggest advocate for what you want and search that out and find what you can find. Okay. Now, it may be possible that you've been having a difficult time finding midwives in your state who will assist with HBAC without a proven VBAC, which means they want you to have already had a VBAC before they would support you in having a home birth after cesarean. And I wonder if you've actually talked to these midwives or if this is something that has been listed on their website or something like that. Because when you have an actual conversation with the midwife and you explain the situation, sometimes that can make a difference. Um, particularly given that you had a C-section for breach presentation. So nothing to do with labor or any type of quote unquote problem that could have arose uh, during the birthing process. Without having your full medical history, it sounds like you would make a fantastic HBAC candidate. But finding the right support really is incredibly important. You want to feel completely safe with your care providers and your team and the people who support you in your birth. You mentioned in your question that you felt duped with your last birth. And whatever those issues were in the support with your last providers, those are the, some of the very first things that you want to ask these midwives. You want to tell them your experience about this first time around and tell them all of your concerns, each thing, how you felt duped, ask them about their communication style, ask them what happens if babies breach. Of course, you're going to be asking them what happens if babies in a breach presentation? How do, what can we do about this? Um, how can I continue to work with you and continue to pursue a home birth? Find out, do they attend breach home births? Some, some midwives do. For you and any listener listening who is wondering what to ask or how to interview a home birth midwife, Always start with your top concerns. Whatever is coming up in your mind, even if you feel like, oh, I don't know, this seems so silly or petty or whatever it is. It's not silly. It's not petty. It's 100% the main questions you should be asking your midwife. Whatever is top of mind, most important to you, you've got to get their answers. When it came to my home birth and my top concerns, it was really easy for me to identify what those were. 
one of the biggest things that you will hear about time and time again, if you're a VBAC mom, uh, if you've done any research on it, is uterine rupture. The risk of uterine rupture is higher in a woman who has had a previous C-section who has a vaginal birth or is attempting a vaginal birth than those who have never had a cesarean before. It was really important for me to ask my midwives what their experience has been with uterine rupture. Have they ever had anyone who's had a uterine rupture before? Have they ever had to transfer anyone? What was the outcome? What are they looking for in terms of signs that uh, an impending uterine rupture is, is about to occur? Those types of things. And it was really helpful and very reassuring to hear their answers because I learned exactly what my midwife was going to be looking for. I came to find out that uterine rupture, there are many, many signs before anything catastrophic were to happen and that they would be monitoring me during my labor at home for any of those signs and that they would not hesitate whatsoever to initiate a transfer and discuss initiating a transfer with me if something concerning were to come up. Beyond getting your answers to your top questions, you've got to like their answers in that they say things that make you feel calm, at ease, safe, and content. That is how you want to be feeling at the end of these conversations. If you're feeling unsure, uneasy, tense, you maybe are filled with some trepidation at the end of the interview, those are red flags. Those are signs that this is not the provider for you. In addition to talking specifically about your previous birth experiences and your top questions and hesitations and concerns, there are certain questions that you'll want to discuss with your midwife to figure out what prenatal care is like, what she is like in an emergency situation, what you can expect postpartum, what you can expect actually at the birth when she will join you. Will there be a birthing pool if that's something you're interested in? There are many questions that you can ask in addition. And I've put together a free guide, 60 must-ask questions for home birth midwives. And the link is on the show notes page. You're definitely going to want to go and download that. Get it in your hands so you've got it ready to go when you go interview your home birth midwives. To submit your own question for a chance to have it answered, either here or in my No Fear Home Birth Weekly email series, just follow the link in the show notes. Now, before we get into Penny's birth story, I want to introduce myself and let you know who I am and a little bit about me and my family. So, of course, I'm Megan R. Cooper, and I am the creator of the No Fear Home Birth podcast. I am a mom to two lovely daughters, Penny, who is six, and Amelia, who is soon to be four, and I am wife to Brett. We've been married for 13 years, is that right? Yeah, I think we're coming up on 14 years. Wow. Um, we live in Madison, Wisconsin, here in the Midwest, and we just love it. We love spending time outside. 
we love to do things together as a family, play games, read books, take hikes, spend time outside, go to the parks. Um, we love to travel. Yeah, we are just a fun little family, <laughs> I guess. Um, I am a nurse by trade. I've been a nurse for over 10 years and I also have been an entrepreneur for the last two and a half years. So that's a little bit about me and my family. Let's get into Penny's birth story. But before we can really talk about her birth story specifically, I want to share about my very first pregnancy. In September of 2015, Brett and I decided to try, decided, oh my gosh, in December, oh my gosh, in September of 2015, my husband and I decided to start trying to conceive. Uh, We'd been married for seven years at this point, and we finally felt like we were ready to start building our family. We were so shocked and surprised because I became pregnant the very first month of trying right away in October and we found out I was pregnant and we were so happy and excited. It it was incredible. Uh, we decided not to tell anyone kind of had the thought of let's wait until about 12 weeks and then we'll announce the pregnancy. And right after I found out that I was pregnant, we took a really long bike trip the weekend after I found out and we biked over 125 miles on this trip. And during this, so we had hours together and during this ride, we talked endlessly about how our lives were going to change. You know, the whole weekend was spent just in love and excitement and just sheer joy A few days after we got home, when I was at work um, at the hospital, I went to the bathroom and I noticed some blood in my underwear. I freaked out, honestly. Immediately, my brain went to the idea of miscarriage. And I called Brett from the bathroom at work. Um, It was like 9 p.m. I was on a p.m. shift. And... uh, I was, you know, I was just freaking out and I was having him research. What is, what could this bleeding be? Right. Um, and I was just bawling. I was just bawling. So we didn't really know for sure, um, what was going to happen. And we just kind of knew that we needed to wait it out and see. Um, you know, I, of course, Brett had read aloud to me that, Minimal bleeding can be normal. Like if you have, you know, small amounts of bleeding and early in pregnancy, that can be normal. So I felt a little bit better. Um, and I, and I went back to work, but I did take a little bit of time to send an email to my doctor about the bleeding. So the next morning I was still bleeding and the doctor's office said I should schedule an appointment. Um, that I should schedule an appointment. Um, and then they said if I was bleeding enough to have to change my pads sooner than every hour, um, then I needed to go to the emergency room. Um, 
my bleeding became heavier and heavier throughout the morning and not to the point of me going to the emergency room, but I just knew, I knew in my heart of hearts that I was losing the baby. And as I was, as I sat down in the doctor's office and I was waiting for the doctor to come, I was just shaking and bawling. My husband was at work. He couldn't go with me. And I felt so so scared and so alone. It was, it was really hard. Um, and I had never met the doctor who I saw that day. Um, I'll call him Dr. W. Um, when he came in to the room, he had the most empathetic look on my face. And he told me he was so sorry that I was going through this. Um, and he explained that he could check my cervix to see whether it was open or not, but that given what was going on with my bleeding, he's pretty sure that I was indeed having a miscarriage. Um, and at that moment, you know, I really broke down. I had tears streaming down my face. I was, I, I just, I couldn't even speak, you know, uh, we sat for a moment kind of in silence because Dr. W gave me this, this time to grieve the loss of my unborn child. Um, and then he said the words that described exactly how I was feeling. And he said, no matter how far along we are in pregnancy, we love our children from the moment of conception and I was only five and a half weeks pregnant, but I already loved this baby and had already thought about this child tirelessly, endlessly, like who she or he was going to be, what they were going to be like, how our lives were going to be different forever. I had imagined Brett and my parents and our siblings and friends learning the news, meeting our baby, growing up together. And, you know, it was, it almost felt like as quickly as I'd learned I was pregnant, my pregnancy and my baby's life were taken away from me. And I was devastated. <sighs> so it's important that I share that story because, um, it does play into the type of birth that I ended up choosing for, my daughter Penny, when we got pregnant with her, um, we decided probably about a month after the miscarriage that we were going to start trying again, um, to conceive. And this time it took a couple of months, um, to get pregnant. But in January, 2016, I found myself pregnant again. And, I, so the first two months that we had been trying again that I hadn't gotten pregnant yet, um, I had been taking multiple pregnancy tests, you know, right at 28 days, um, right at the time when, you know, I thought I would get a positive if I was going to get one. Right. Um, and this third time around, I just decided, I'm like, I can't keep just taking a bunch of pregnancy tests. Like, 
I need to make sure that it's like totally a hundred percent going to be yes. If it's a yes or no, if it's going to be a no, right. So that I'm not just using all these tests. Um, I didn't really know how long my typical cycle was because I had been on birth control for 10 years. Um, you know, before we attempted to conceive. So I decided like, I just assumed, okay, the typical cycle is 28 days long. I guess we'll, we'll plan on that. Right. So, um, one Thursday (laughs) I was waiting for Brett to get home from work and we had planned to go out for Mexican food because it was a two for one margaritas like, uh, special. Right. Um, we used to go to this this amazing, delicious Mexican restaurant that was just a half mile from our apartment. And we loved that we could just walk there. It was, um, it was amazing. And then especially if we were going to go have margaritas, we could just go walk, drink our margaritas and come home. And while I was waiting for him to get home, like all of a sudden it dawned on me, like maybe I should take a pregnancy test just in case before we drink the margaritas. Right. And so if my cycle were to be 28 days long, I would have been quote unquote, two days late at this point. So I found a a pregnancy test in the closet. I sat down, (laughs) peed on the stick and almost immediately on the screen digital screen window, it said pregnant. And I was ecstatic. Like I was literally jumping up and down and I could not wait for Brett to get home. I, I was, I was pacing around by the front door. I was pacing around our apartment, just like, like willing him with my full being to like come home, you know? And after what felt like a, an eternity, I heard a noise in the hallway of the apartment so I opened the door and, and like, I was so excited. I yelled down the stairs. Um, and as I was waiting for the response, I saw Brett's head as he rounded the corner and made his way upstairs to our apartment. And he, you know, greeted me and he wondered why I looked so giddy. And I said, guess what? I'm pregnant. And just this huge smile erupted on Brett's face. And he was like, no, you're not serious. you know, we, we hugged, we kissed, we were beyond excited. We went to the Mexican restaurant, ate a delicious meal. He had a margarita. I did not. And we talked about how we couldn't believe I was really pregnant again. And it was just really beautiful. During the first few weeks of my pregnancy, I was really nervous that I was going to have another miscarriage. Um, we again decided not to tell anyone that I was pregnant at first. Um, once I made it past five and a half weeks, which is when I miscarried the first time I felt a little better. Um, but I felt still felt anxious. I knew that, you know, most miscarriages occurred during the first trimester and I still had a long time left until I was out of that, um, period. So Brett and I had planned a ski trip during the winter out to Colorado. Um, We had gone several years in a row and we went on this ski trip with my parents and I was going to be about eight weeks pregnant at the time of our trip. And to be completely honest, (laughs) 
we knew we were going to have to tell my parents I was pregnant before the trip because it was going to be pretty obvious if we went on this trip and I was declining to drink any alcohol or saying, no, I don't want to, I can't go in the hot tub. Um, after a long day of skiing in the cold weather, right. We, we knew they would know something was up. And so it just made a lot more sense for us to tell them, um, before we let left. So we bought a, we decided to tell them on Valentine's day. Um, and we, bought a Valentine's day card from the store that said, happy Valentine's day, mom and dad. Um, and we crossed out mom and dad and wrote grandma and grandpa. And then on the inside we wrote surprise we're expecting in October, 2016. Uh, and, uh, you know, we showed up unexpectedly one Saturday morning when my parents were having coffee and gave them the card And I mean, they were so excited to be grandparents. This was going to be their first grandchild. And I mean, they were just so excited. And we told, you know, we asked them not to tell anyone we were pregnant because we wanted to wait until after the first trimester. Um, And they had such a difficult time keeping the news. Um, Every chance they could, they urged us to at least share the news with my brother um, so that they could, like, have someone to talk to about this, right? Um, but, yeah, and I remember on our way to Colorado, we we drove there that year. Um, we spent hours of the drive coming up with baby names. Uh, we were looking at billboards and street signs, for inspiration as we drove by. And it was seriously so much fun and just, it was just a really, really exciting time. Um, by about 10 weeks pregnant, we did end up telling my brother, um, and sister-in-law and we told Brett's parents as well. And yeah, it was just, it was just really wonderful. With my history of having a miscarriage, I think that played a big role in me wanting to be part of the the traditional medical and hospital system um, with this pregnancy. So way back, five years before we ever were pregnant, I was introduced to the concept of midwives and doulas, um, in nursing school and in home birth. Like, uh, and I was first introduced to the concept of midwives and doulas and home birth. I literally have never heard of any of these things, um, until we watched a documentary called the business of being born in my obstetrics nursing class. And this documentary is, I mean, it's just incredible, right? And it highlights the women's inner strength and their amazing ability to give birth at home naturally without any pain medication. And it also sort of shines a light on some of the uh, things that I guess I would describe as a broken, kind of a broken healthcare system, to be completely honest. And after seeing that film, I was in complete awe. And I knew way back, 25 years old, five years before I got pregnant, I was like, I definitely want to consider a home birth in the future. Um, And I knew for sure I definitely was going to have a a doula with me during my birthing time as well. And as soon as I 
you know, became pregnant with Penny though, I wanted to see a provider ASAP because I wanted to confirm my pregnancy, find out the next steps and just keep a really, really close eye since I had had that, um, uh, miscarriage. The other thing is I just, I just, I had this, what I now believe to be a misconception, but at the time I really felt like I would feel more secure and safe in a hospital setting where the staff, you know, was there to help in case of an emergency. Um, at that time I did not realize that really just how prepared midwives are in the home birth setting to help with, with emergencies as well. Um, and in retrospect now, you know, it's like if I had gone through a miscarriage, I can't imagine, um, being with, you know, I can't imagine a provider being any more helpful and supportive and, um, just compassionate than a midwife, uh, during that time. So, yeah. Overall, my pregnancy went really, really well. I was in really good shape and, um, things, things just went well. Um, Brett came to every single prenatal appointment with me. Um, I never experienced any nausea, no vomiting. Like I, I just felt really, really good. Um, until about six months pregnant, I started getting numbness and tingling in my wrists and I was diagnosed at that time with pregnancy related carpal tunnel. And I dealt with that for my entire birth or my entire pregnancy and beyond actually, to be honest. Um, but this was like my first real, uh, whether it was pregnancy related or not, honestly, this was like my first, um, medical issue, I guess that I had ever had in my life. And so I found it really difficult to handle. Um, like I, I, it was super hard to chop up my food. It was hard to ride my bike. Um, it was really hard to knit. Even holding a cup of coffee um, would just cause this, you know, tingling and numbness. And I always felt like I was going to drop something. And I, it, it was really, really stressful. So that was definitely a low point um, of the pregnancy. And the last couple months of my pregnancy which were during the end of summer, like the summer heat, um, into the fall, which it still continued to be warm that year. It was kind of weird. (laughs) It was kind of amazing. Actually, it stayed, um, quite warm all the way up until we went into the hospital. And then when we came home out of the hospital, um, after the birth, it was freezing cold. Like it was, it was crazy. And I always remember thinking like, shouldn't I at least get, cause I knew I was going to be so hot as I got more pregnant. Cause I typically tend to run hot, uh, in general and having a little cooker attached to me, I was like, this is going to be like, this is going to be crazy, but at least, you know, it'll cool down the last couple months of pregnancy. So that'll be helpful. And it never did. <laughs> But during all that heat, um, and just because I probably, because I was getting to the end of pregnancy, I did have a lot of swelling, um, in my 
my legs and my ankles. Uh, that was something I experienced. And our air conditioner, we just had a window air conditioner and it didn't really work very well. And so that was just hard and annoying. <laughs> my very, very favorite part of that pregnancy was feeling the baby kick and move around in my belly. Like I, I just longed for that. I loved it. I cherished it. I mean, it was just the most beautiful, amazing thing ever. I can't, I can't even like, it was just so good. So the OBGYN that I had chosen to work with Dr. F Brett and I literally chose her (laughs) by looking at a website and picking the doctor whose, you know, name, you know, picture and bio like looked like it would match us the best, which is not the way to choose a doctor or a midwife. Okay. Um, you've got to talk to them and interview them. Right. I know this now, but we literally saw this, you know, lovely woman, um, in this picture and her bio talked about how she loved to spend time outside and loved to bike. And as you know, from just a little earlier in this episode where I shared that Brett and I, of course, like to bike too. We did that big bike trip. So we thought, Oh good. She's the one for us. That's how we picked her. (laughs) Um, and during our appointments, uh, she felt, seemed very relatable, very knowledgeable, uh, I did always feel like she was in and out of the exam room really quickly during our appointments. She maybe spent seven to 10 minutes or so with us, but we did always feel like she answered all of our questions. Um, at the very first appointment that we had with her, which was around eight weeks, she told me she was part of a practice of 12 OBGYNs. So the likelihood of me being, or of her being at my birth excuse me, was very low. Um, However, she said, I remember her saying that in her experience, women had told her that they remembered the provider that they built a relationship during their pregnancy, remembered the provider they built a relationship with during their pregnancy more than the provider who was there for the baby's birth, which was an interesting thing you know, now in retrospect to here. Um, but I just decided to, so I was very aware that I only had an 8% chance of her being at my birth. Yes, I did the math on it. (laughs) Um, but I decided to just cross my fingers and hope she would happen to be the one on call the day that I went into labor. So around 20 week, around 20 weeks pregnant, While I was at work, sorry, when I was 20 weeks pregnant, when I was around 20 weeks pregnant, when I was at work, some of my coworkers asked me what type of pain management I was planning on using during my birth and if I planned to get an epidural. And I told them I was basically planning to play it by ear, (laughs) Uh, that I would plan to just go with the flow, you know, of labor. And I remember one coworker telling me, wow, the hospital staff is going to love you. And another coworker who had had two unexpected C-section births 
suggested that I read a book called Your Best Birth by Ricky Lake and Abby Epstein. Um, It's a fantastic book. You're going to want to check that out. And I will link that in the show notes as well. But that conversation is really what got me thinking more about what type of birth I wanted to have. Um, Through the first half of my pregnancy, I'd been so worried that I may miscarry again. I didn't really even give myself a chance to think about what my birth could be like. And so I took the advice of my coworker and I read Your Best Birth and discovered I actually had really strong preferences for my birth. From there, you know, I I read several more books. I started researching doulas in the area and decided really pretty quickly and, and easily that I wanted to have a, you know, birth experience without pain medication or any interventions. We hired a couple different doulas and we hired our wonderful doula, Angie, Um, and we both felt so comfortable with her, very excited to have her on board. And we were just, we were just really excited. And so I was, I was ready. (laughs) I was ready to do this. Um, as I learned more and more though, and I kept, I, it was like a rabbit hole. Your, when I read your best birth, I just, from there, after I decided I wanted a medication-free, intervention-free birth, it was like I wanted to consume everything that I possibly could about birth, um, everything that I needed to know. Um, how could I actually have this natural birth? <laughs> like, what did people do to, to make that happen? How did they avoid interventions? What were the interventions and why, why did I need to even be worried about it? Like I, these are all the things that I was just researching all the time. And I, I eventually got to the point where I started to feel like if I really wanted to have this particular type of birth, I wanted a natural birth, that I was going to need a provider who really supported me in that. And, and I, and I knew that again, if Dr. F had my OBGYN had, even if she was very supportive, um, which to be honest, she was, she had some red flags there, um, in terms of, of having a, you know, supporting someone with, to have a natural birth, um, but even if she had been fully supportive, you know, I only had an 8% chance of her being there. And so it's like, well, I have no idea if this, you know, who's going to show up at my birth and if they're going to support my birth plan or not. And so at 32 weeks pregnant, I really started to strongly consider changing providers. And I, I was so conflicted. And I just didn't really know what to do. Um, I ended up calling Dr. W's office, the doctor who had, you know, delivered the news to me about my, about my previous miscarriage. And he had been so empathetic during that conversation. I thought, well, uh, maybe he would be the, the person to work with. Right. And he was a family physician with OB, um, privileges. So he was not a surgeon. And I thought also, if I have a doctor supporting me, who's not a surgeon, um, I probably would be a lot less likely to end up with a C-section birth. 
And I found out that Dr. W attends all of his pregnant patients' births whenever possible and that he was able and willing to accept me as a new patient. And I felt this really strong desire to switch over to his care, but I wasn't sure if my health insurance would cover the switch in providers. And I knew that with my current OBGYN practice that there was one global fee that was charged um, after giving birth that covered all of the routine prenatal appointments, hospital birth, and a six-week postpartum visit. And I really wasn't sure how the fees would work out if I switched over to Dr. W., who was, you know, a family care physician at a totally different practice. And because of that and not knowing and just being worried that we were going to be stuck with this huge bill, I decided I would stick with my OBGYN because I was only a few weeks away from delivery and I didn't know if the insurance would cover it. And I didn't, I also didn't want to have to break up quote unquote with my OBGYN, right? In retrospect, I absolutely wish I would have one called my insurance company to find out if changing providers was a viable option and two, not let that be a hindrance to me in pursuing my best birth, really. The last few weeks of my pregnancy, I was very, very active. I took five-mile walks almost every day. I was trying to you know, stay active and to get labor started. I listened to an amazing podcast that featured women's birth stories and listened to them every day. I loved listening to, I loved listening to these stories so much. Every story was completely different and I felt like it was helping me to be really open-minded about how my labor and my baby's birth could go. And it just really opened me up to a lot of experiences and I learned a lot. And I also was listening to birth affirmations every single day. And all of those things helped me stay really, really positive about pregnancy and birth. At 39 weeks pregnant, my doula suggested that Brett and I plan a nice date for the night of my due date. Uh, she, she said, you know, this will help take the pressure off the due date and give you something really fun and enjoyable to look forward to. So Brett and I planned a date night for Tuesday, October 4th, which was the due date. Um, secretly, I still hoped in my mind <laughs> that I would go into labor prior to that date, but I was excited for, for our, for our date night. We had that wonderful night together, but my due date came and went and I hadn't gone into labor yet. So I went to my 40 week appointment with Dr. F and when Brett and I had gotten to this appointment, there was a medical assistant in training along with her trainer who checked me in before the doctor saw me. And right when I sat down in the office, I noticed she had a piece of paper that had a date with three different times written on it. And she did the usual, t- you know, check in. She asked me about my pregnancy symptoms, took my blood pressure you know, all the things. And then she asked what time I'd like to check in for my induction on October 11th, which was right at 41 weeks. I told her I didn't want any of those times because I wasn't planning on getting induced at all, which I had already discussed with Dr. F. 
the new medical assistant literally looked like a deer in the headlights. Like clearly this was not something she was expecting to hear. She didn't even ask me about, um, getting this induction scheduled. Right. I didn't, I hadn't even talked to the doctor yet. She just clearly it's so commonplace that they just come in and this is just what they do at 41 weeks. They schedule for induction at 41 weeks. Right. She looked over to her trainer, um, for guidance and, and the trainer said, okay, well let's let you discuss this with the doctor. So when Dr. F came in, she told us that after 41 weeks of pregnancy, the risks of continuing pregnancy start to outweigh the potential benefits of keeping the baby in the womb any longer. And I was interested. I I thought that was interesting because I had read a number of numerous books and medical studies that suggested that that wasn't the case until after 42 weeks. Dr. F said, you know, it's your decision, but she really strongly urged me to schedule an induction now, quote unquote. So it was on the books and definitely said not to go past 42 weeks pregnant. And this felt re- like incredibly stressful to me because I didn't want to be induced. And this was never part of any plan. And she already knew that, but obviously didn't remember or didn't care or whatever. And when she left the room, Brett and I talked about it and we decided to schedule an induction for 41 weeks and four days. So we tried to push it back a little bit. Um, and we honestly, we picked that day because that would bring us to scheduling the induction for a Saturday, which would work out well because he would have a couple more days of paternity leave, like if we had to schedule an induction. And my induction date was set for October 15th. And so I left that appointment feeling 100% like that's when I was going to be induced. Like I absolutely thought, like no doubt in my mind that this baby was going to be born on the 15th or 16th or 17th, you know, however long it took. But that was, that's what I, I knew, like, I thought I knew that. Right. Um, yeah, it, it was just really stressful. So the next night, little did I know, <laughs> I went to my usual water aerobics class that I had been going to And after we ate dinner and I got home from my class, I noticed this small amount of pinkish liquid in my underwear, really small, about the size of a quarter. And I was curious about what this was because I had heard two things when it came to water being broken. I I sort of suspected like, could this be my water breaking? But the two things I had heard from people telling their stories were a large gush of fluid or just like a pretty constant trickle. And I didn't see any more liquid in my underwear the rest of the evening before I went to bed. So I didn't really think too much of it. And I figured, I don't know, I'm just going to try to ignore it basically. (laughs) So at 3 a.m. I woke up to go to the bathroom and had a larger area of pink tinge liquid in my underwear. And I saw like a little bit of bloody show in the toilet. And so at this point I knew, okay, yeah, my water is broke is broken. And I woke up because I was so excited 
but I still thought, thought it was really odd that there wasn't a constant trickle, um, or a big gush or anything like this. I was having no contractions at all at this point. Um, my doctor's office had told me that if my water broke, I should go into the hospital right away. Um, and when they told me that I already knew, like, I definitely didn't want to do that. Right. I knew that they were going to start a timer as soon as my water broke basically. And I feared that if I went to the hospital and I wasn't having any contractions, they were going to induce me, right. They were going to want to start me on Pitocin and get things going. So we, I, I couldn't go back to sleep, honestly. And we wait, I waited a few more hours, um, until 6am because I wanted to be a little bit more of a reasonable time. And then I called my doula and told her that I thought my water had broken. And she, she said, Oh, congratulations. (laughs) It's your birthing day. Um, and she was, she was so happy for us. And she asked what I wanted to do next. And I was totally surprised by this because I just really thought she was going to say, okay, you know, time to go to the hospital. But she was reminding me that it was my decision. Like, how do you want to proceed next in this birth? And it was just such a good reminder that this was my body and my birth and I could do whatever I wanted to do. So I told her, okay, I think Brett and I will go for a walk and try to get labor started. Brett and I, we walked around the neighborhood we weighed our options. I could call the clinic, ask for advice. I could go to the hospital or we could wait and see if labor would start on its own. And I had always planned in my birth plan to labor at home for as long as possible so that there was the smallest chance of intervention once I got to the hospital. But honestly, and and the other thing is one of my biggest fears was my water being my first sign of pregnancy and contractions not starting because again, like I knew I'd be on this timer and I knew like it would just feel so much more stressful and like we had so much more pressure and you know, we, we spent all day basically trying to figure out what we were supposed to do. And about after we had eaten lunch around 1230, I finally decided, fine, I'm going to call the doctor's office and just let them know what's going on. Like I was such a people pleaser and a rule follower back then that I just, I like, it was so stressful to me to know that I had been told to do something and then me actively not doing it. So I called the clinic and it wasn't even a question when I talked to the nurse on the phone, it was just like, okay, I'll let the hospital know you're on your way. And I was like, um, okay, (laughs) what? Um, so I don't know. So anyway, right after that, I started having some contractions and I felt so relieved. I mean, they were super mild, but I had some contractions and I wanted to see how labor would progress. Right. So I texted my doula to update her. And for the rest of the afternoon, Brett and I stayed home and I had these mild contractions. And finally at about 6 30 PM, I decided we should head to the hospital. I, it had been six hours since I had called the clinic and I figured they were wondering where we were. And 
it, I like at this point it had been 15 hours since my water had broken. And I was just, again, just feeling like this pressure and this urge to follow the rules, quote unquote, and get to the hospital. And when I got to the registration desk and I still was not, I was barely, could barely even tell I was contracting, to be honest. And when I got to the registration desk, the lady who checked me and said, oh, we were wondering if you were going to come in. We figured maybe you realized that it wasn't really your water that had broken, that you just peed yourself. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so they took me to the triage room, tested the amniotic fluid and it, or the liquid, and they confirmed it was indeed amniotic fluid. So I had a couple of contractions while I was in there, but really nothing much, right? Um, an OBGYN resident came in to the triage room after they confirmed my water had broken and he wanted to do a quick ultrasound and a cervical check. And I consented to both. Um, they wanted to just do the ultrasound to make sure baby was head down. And then he's, he told me I was two to three centimeters dilated. And I was actually really happy with this because it showed progress from my last cervical check when I was only one centimeter, um, in the office. So, we were brought to my labor room. The nurse hooked me up to a monitor to monitor my contractions and the baby's heart rate um, for a little while. Just, I think they, I think they did like an initial thirty minutes or so. Um, I had this amazing nurse who, you know, told us she had previously been a doula, and she was when she heard I wanted to have, you know, a natural unmedicated birth. She told me I could definitely do it. She instilled so much confidence in me from the moment that I met her. It was incredible and amazing. I was like, this is the perfect nurse for me to have here right now. Right. And she was so considerate and kind, you know, if I had a contraction, she would be quiet. She would stop talking, let me go through my contraction. And then we'd pick up our conversation in between. Right. But she only was there for four hours, which was really sad. <laughs> um, but soon after I got into my you know, labor and delivery room, the doctor on call from Dr. F's office um, came in and introduced himself. His name was Dr. L. And we reviewed together him, Brett, and I, and my doula was there at this point. And we reviewed every item on my birth plan, which I had written out and printed. Um, and he, he told me I'm on board with everything on your plan. Everything. One of the things that I had written on my birth plan was I wanted unlimited pushing phase. Like I didn't want to be told like you've been pushing long enough. Now we're going to a C-section. And I remember him telling me that his wife had pushed for five hours before she birthed her child. And just that little piece of information was like, yes, okay, this is someone who gets it. It's going to let me do what I want to do, right? And then in response to another item I had on there, which was Brett to catch the baby, I remember telling him, or him saying, this is not really typical in the hospital, but if the circumstances, you know, are right, then... Yeah, if I'm st and I'm still here, absolutely Brett can be the one to catch the baby. 
And he told us at that time that the doctor coming on the next morning, Dr. H, would probably not be on board with Brett catching the baby because she was very, quote unquote, by the book. And that comment (laughs) definitely stuck with me. I mean, he was trying to prepare us ahead of time. And I'm sure he knew that first time uh, labors and births, especially those that haven't really started yet, not not really, (laughs) Um, you know, they they take a long time and that he probably wasn't going to be the one here uh, when I gave birth and it was going to be Dr. H. And I just, I had this like sinking feeling that Dr. H was not going to be supportive about my birth plan. And I just remember thinking, well, hopefully I can push this baby out sometime in the next 12 hours before the next doctor gets here. Before Dr. L left the room, I asked if I could be disconnected from the monitor. And he said, yep, absolutely. Um, And just told the nurse that she could use the Doppler device to check, you know, intermittent fetal heart tones. And so I was really happy with that. The nurse disconnected me from the monitor and suggested that Brett and I walk the halls to get labor to progress. And while we were in the halls, our doula set up our labor room with aromatherapy and twinkling lights. Brett and I, we, we walked the halls for about two hours, stopping so I could rest and breathe through contractions as they came. And when we got back to the room, my doula offered some snacks and really was encouraging me to drink water. And from that point on, really, I drank water between every contraction. At this point, my contractions were coming every five minutes or so, and they were strong enough to be felt, but I was definitely still aware of what was going on around me and I could talk through them. So it was, you know, I knew I had a long way to go. (laughs) I labored in a lot of different positions, trying to figure out like which one really felt best. Uh, I sat and rocked on a birthing ball. I slow danced with Brett. I sat on a birthing stool. I did a Captain Morgan pose, which kind of like involves me putting one foot up on a chair and keeping the other on the floor. And at 11 PM, the, the wonderful nurse who used to be a doula went home and I got a new nurse for the night. Around midnight, I got into the bathtub. They, my hospital did not allow water birth, but they did allow you to labor in the tub. And I was really, I I remember (laughs) I was still feeling really, really modest at this point. And I had a sports bra on and underwear on in the tub. Um, I was just very aware of all the people in the room and I felt kind of awkward just like being in the bathroom with my husband there and just like this nurse who was basically just sitting there watching us and every 20 to 30 minutes checking the um, fetal heart tone. So it just like really shows you that I was not in active labor yet. I was in early labor. Um, so sometime around two in the morning, something like that, Dr. L came into my room and said, um, he, he, you know, he wanted to check to see how dilated my cervix was at this point. Um, I really didn't want to get out of the bathtub. I really didn't, but 
you know, and I remember saying that and my doula and the nurse left the bathroom and I later ended up finding out that Dr. L had listened to me outside of the bathroom door for a couple of contractions. Um, and he told my doula and the nurse that he could tell my labor was progressing at that point based on the sounds I was making. And so he was okay with skipping a cervical check at that time. Around three in the morning, I finally got out of the tub um, and contractions were really starting to become difficult at that point. And my doula suggested that I blow out my lips like a horse during each contraction, like horse lips, to help like promote relaxation of my jaw and so that I wasn't tensing. And I took this advice because I could definitely feel my body was tensing up each time a contraction would start. And over the next four hours, I rotated through labor positions. I went to the bed for a while. I, I was all over the place, honestly. (laughs) And by now I had contractions coming every two to three minutes and they were, they were really intense. Sometime in the early morning, an OBGYN resident came in and informed me that I was dilated to five centimeters. And I was really glad that I had progressed, but I also felt like I should be further along at that point. It had been over 24 hours since my water had broken and I'd been in like full bone labor for about 12 hours at that point. When 7 a.m. hit, a new nurse walked into my room. She introduced herself and immediately told me that the new on-call, Dr. H, wanted to collect a urine sample for to test my urine-specific gravity, which would give an idea of how hydrated I was. Because I had been drinking water between every single contraction and had been urinating frequently, like I knew I was really well hydrated and I didn't need to do a test. And so I, I declined to do the test. And even though it's not that big of a deal, it was just more out of principle, like... This is just kind of ridiculous, right? The mood all changed. Everything shifted. Dr. H was here. This new nurse was here. And you, you, I, you could feel this huge change. It had been calm, supportive, quiet, dark all night that I had been there. And all of a sudden, it's the morning. And I've got new providers coming in. It's bright. It's intense. They want all these things. Like it just really, I don't know. It it was just really crazy, I guess. Um, Dr. H came in to meet me and asked to perform a cervical check. And she said, you know, even though you've been checked recently, I want to see where you're at because it's been 28 hours since your water is broken. And, and she said, you know, I'm worried that you could get an infection if, if you don't get give birth soon. And I agreed begrudgingly and got on the bed so she could do the check. And she abruptly told me as soon as she did the check, she said, you're four centimeters at best. And I was so upset because I had been just told a few hours earlier that I was at five centimeters. And now she was telling me, you know, I was, it was you know, quote unquote worse, or I had gone backwards or whatever. And just the way she said it was just so, I don't know, just not great. And she then said, did you realize that your forebag is still intact? 
And I told her no, and I don't really even know what that means. (laughs) And she explained that the top of my bag of waters had broken, which is why I was only periodically getting small amounts of fluid leakage that like the entire bag had not been broken basically. And she went on to tell me that with each contraction, my uterus was squeezing the baby, pushing fluid up and out of the amniotic sac rather than pushing the baby down into my cervix, which is probably why I wasn't further dilated. And so she recommended breaking my water and I hadn't wanted any intervention. I did not want to have this done, but at this point I felt so tired and to me, her explanation made so much sense that I was like, okay, we, this, yes, let's just do this. Right. And so she took this long crochet looking hook and punctured the amniotic sac. And I felt this huge gush of warm water expel from my body. And Dr. H looked at me and said, unfortunately, the amniotic fluid is a green brown color, which means meconium is in the fluid. This could mean the baby's in distress, so we need to put on a continuous fetal monitor now. And as soon as I heard that the amniotic fluid was discolored, uh, this overwhelmingly huge wave of disappointment spread over me. I could just see in my mind's eye that we were about to embark on the cascade of interventions. I just saw my birth slipping away. Everything that I wanted, I could just see it was being stripped away from me. I knew this was it. This was the start of that cascade of interventions. And I was bawling, just bawling. I was, it was so, so hard. Um, At that point, I got onto a birthing ball. I tried to manage my pain during the contractions, but pain went from like zero to 60 once my bag of waters was broken. Um, and I I felt really out of control and I I was really not able to be in my birth. I was, I couldn't even focus on like my horse lip breathing. I just couldn't stop thinking about the meconium in, you know, the amniotic fluid. And I just couldn't stop crying. And I just remember too being on this birthing ball and it seemed like every contraction, I swear the nurse was coming over to me and like fiddling with the monitor cause it wasn't picking up the contractions or it wasn't picking up the baby's heart rate very well. And I was so angry and in my mind, I was literally yelling, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> but I couldn't actually say it out loud And she was so focused on the monitor. She wasn't looking at me at all to see how strong the contractions were. She's like, I can't tell what's happening on the monitor with your contractions. I'm like, look at me. Like, look at me and how I'm handling this. You can see how strong these contractions are. So this was the point where I started to think about getting an epidural. I was already thinking, you know, I'm only four centimeters dilated. I've been in labor for 15 hours and I'm so exhausted already. If even if I get to 10 centimeters, like would I be able to push the baby out if I didn't get rest? Um, and you know, like part of my birth plan of course was to forgo pain medication. And so I thought about the epidural to myself. Like I didn't mention it. I didn't want to say anything out loud to my, doula or my husband, 
because I knew they would try to talk me out of it since that's what I told them that I wanted. (laughs) And eventually I went to the bathroom and took Brett with me. I didn't want my doula to come. (laughs) And when we were alone, I just started bawling and I just told him I need an epidural. Like I told him I was totally emotionally shot and I just was not able to cope with the contractions anymore. And he supported me. You know, we we went back out. We told the doula and the nurse. And my doula actually said she thought it was a good idea. And she she could see that I was starting to really struggle and that an epidural would help me get some rest before I got to the pushing phase. To me, once I got the... Once I gave the go-ahead for the epidural, I was ready for it, like, snap my fingers right then, right? It was like, it took me so long to finally say, you know what, screw this. I I want the epidural. And so then once I said I wanted it, it's like, I wanted it. And it took the anesthesiologist 20 minutes to get to the room, which doesn't necessarily sound that long, but, God, it felt long in so long. Like, it really did. Um... So it was just really, it was just really hard. And once he got to the room, the anesthesiologist immediately started spilling off his well-rehearsed epidural speech of exactly what he was going to do, what was going to happen. Like clearly he has said this to a million women a million times over and over. Right. And he asked me to open my mouth and I uttered that I couldn't. Uh, I was in the middle of a really strong contraction and he just continued on with his speech and that his like, that he's like rehearsed a million times or whatever. And I remember wondering, like I remembered wondering why does he want to look in my mouth? Um, and, and I couldn't hear anything, anything that he told me about the epidural because I was going through contractions and he didn't even have the consideration to wait to speak to me, you know, in, until he was between contractions. Clearly he was overworked or over this or whatever. Um, and uh, I don't know. So he asked for my consent. I gave it, even though I hadn't heard anything he said, <laughs> I was so far into labor land at this point. I was just trying to deal with my contractions and I couldn't concentrate on what he was saying. So he prepped my back, injected me with lidocaine, and then inserted the, the epidural needle. And I had a lot of difficulty staying still, right? Because I was contracting. And <laughs> I remember the anesthesiologist looking at the nurse and saying, oh, she had her feet crossed. And the nurse quickly told me to uncross my legs. And the anesthesiologist said that he was unsuccessful at placing the epidural and that he was going to have to attempt to do it again. And uh, uh, just, I quickly realized that the nurse was supposed to ensure that I was in the proper position, obviously, before the epidural was placed, um, including having my feet flat on the stool in front of me. And it probably, like, that, you know, it was, probably didn't take the first time because my feet had been crossed. So it took the anesthesiologist about 15 or 20 minutes to get the epidural like the epidural actually in place. Um, and he, he administered like a loading dose of anesthesia and told me I'd get like a low basal rate, which is basically a continuous rate of the medication. But I also would have a PCA button, like a patient controlled analgesia, but 
button where I could push it like if I needed more of the anesthesia. And I noticed right away while he was in the room with me that the epidural was only affecting my right side. So I could still feel my construction, like my contractions, just like I had not gotten an epidural at all. Like I knew the epidural was working on the right side only because I could not move my right leg. But other than that, like the amount of, of pain that I was feeling just felt like normal. And the anesthesiologist told me, okay, well, like I, I don't know if he rolled his eyes, but in my memory, you know, he rolled his eyes and he's like, okay, well wait 15 minutes. And if you still feel the contractions at that point, then let the nurse know and we'll come back and make some adjustments. So the nurse recommended that I lay on my left side to help the, um, anesthesia medication flow from my right side to my left. And they, you know, we tried that and it was, it didn't work. Um, soon after another nurse came in and I was at this point, like about to say, Hey, we need to get him back in here. Right. Um, because I was just waiting for that 15 minutes to pass so that I could get him to come back in and fix this. Um, and right about that time, another nurse came into the room and told me that they needed to insert a catheter in my bladder. And I couldn't move my right leg at all. Like that's how <laughs> affected my, my right leg was. So my doula and, and Brett, my husband, had to hold my leg in place so that they could get the catheter in. Um, after the catheter was in, the anesthesiologist, you know, they called I told the nurse to call the anesthesiologist back and it took almost an hour for the anesthesiologist just to come. And it was, it just felt like so long. And so then he gave another big dose of anesthesia through the epidural I already had. And at this point I wasn't able to move either of my legs at all. And now I wasn't feeling the contractions anymore, but I couldn't move, <laughs> like literally couldn't move. So the nurses had to ro rotate me from side to side every 15 minutes um, based on their epidural protocol. It was so uncomfortable because I couldn't move myself at all and it took multiple people to turn me. And I just felt like so out of control, such an invalid, like it was just, it was really hard. At this point, they were still having difficulty checking, like getting a consistent reading with my contractions and the baby's heart rate um, with the external monitor. And so the resident that had done my cervical check when I first came into the triage room the night before asked my permission to place an internal monitor on the baby's scalp so that they could get a better idea of how the baby was handling contractions. And I, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want anything that was that invasive. They basically put a little screw into the baby's head and then they can just, they can easily, um, monitor the, the mom's contractions and the heart rate. And I just decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. Cause then at least we're going to know that everything's okay. And you know, as soon as they put it in, they said right away, 
that they could see the baby's heart rate. They could see the strength of my contractions. And they seemed really, really pleased. Like they were like, yep, this looks great. Well, (laughs) unfortunately, Penny started having more and more fetal heart decelerations during contractions. And every time I would have a contraction, the baby's heart rate would go down and then it would pop back up after the contraction was over. And everyone was acting really nervous and really anxious when the heart rate would go down, right? But then they would tell me it's really reassuring when the heart rate went back up. The doctor wanted me to get a bolus of fluid into the amniotic sac because she was guessing that the cord was being compressed each time I had a contraction, which would explain the heart decelerations. So I agreed to this. The funny thing is, in a not funny way at all, it's like (laughs) she was the one who said, let's break your water, and then later wanted to replace the water with a bag of fluid. It's really... It's really kind of nuts when you look back at it. My doctor then, after putting that bolus of fluid in to my amniotic sac, (laughs) um, you know, she had to attend another C-section birth. So she left me in the hands of my nurse and the nurse encouraged me and Brett to get some rest. And at this point, we'd been awake for about 30 hours and Brett fell asleep immediately And I really tried to rest and I knew that sleeping would be really, really, really helpful, but I could hear the beeping of the monitor and that was keeping me awake. Plus the staff was turning me every 15 or 20 minutes and I just, I just, there was just no way I was going to fall asleep. So at one point, um, during that time, a, a, a different OBGYN ran into the room, like literally ran in to check on me. And, and apparently the baby's heart rate had dropped again. And when they had turned me to my left side, so she quote unquote tickled the baby's head and the baby's heart rate popped right back up, which she said was reassuring. And she also told me at that point I was seven centimeters dilated. Maybe 10 minutes later or so, I started to feel some pressure And that made me really excited and also nervous (laughs) because I was like, oh, baby is either moving down or I'm dilating or both. Like it's both. Right. But then I also was like, ah, this is Aperol actually going to work. (laughs) How am I going to push this baby out? You know, all of these things. Um, Dr. H had finished with her other patient C-section and she came back in and she told me she was really concerned about the baby's heart rate decelerations. Um, I told her I was feeling some pressure and asked her to check my cervix. And I remember just feeling really desperate and really like, I'm so close. I want to just push this baby out. I don't want to have to have a C-section. Like I just knew that she was going to go there soon with me. And so that's why I was like, can you just check me again? Like I was just desperate, like check me, see where I'm at. (laughs) And she... Uh, did and and said I was eight centimeters. So I was like, okay, I'm almost there. <laughs> um, but the the next fifteen minutes were really a blur. Everything happened so fast. 
The baby's heart rate decelerated again, and Dr. H said it wasn't recovering, and so she recommended an immediate emergency C-section, which she called a code alpha, and explained that that meant that she wanted the baby out of my body within 15 minutes. (sighs) At this point, tears were streaming down my face as I consented to surgery. I wanted to make sure, of course, the baby ended up safe. And so I agreed. And I remember my nurse handing me the consent form, which I noticed didn't even have any of my information on it yet. Like it didn't have my name, it didn't have my birthday. It was just like this blank form that they had me sign. Um, But as soon as I signed the paper, several staff members rushed in my room and started prepping me for surgery, like immediately. I squeezed Brett's hand and held it for as long as I possibly could before they whisked me away to the OR. And I had asked if Brett was going to be able to come with me to the OR. And well, actually at first I asked if I was going to be able to use my epidural so I could stay awake for the baby's birth. And I was asking this because I already kind of know, knew that there was a good chance this wasn't going to work. I had issues with this epidural from the beginning. And, uh, you know, the doctor told me if the baby's heart rate's high enough, when we get to the OR, we'll check in, you know, the efficacy of the epidural and see if it's something that we can use. Um, or if the baby's heart rate is too low, we're going to have to just, you know, intubate you. Right. And not check it. And we're just going to have to do it you know, another way, because there's not time, basically, to check and see if the epidural is going to be enough. So I then asked if Brett could be there for the birth, and they told him and me that they weren't sure, because it depended on whether or not I was going to be awake for the surgery. So they had him go get gowned up separately, and my doula gathered all of our belongings for us. I remember looking at my husband, holding his hand, bawling, our hands being ripped apart, and just saying to him, this isn't fair. I want a redo. I want a VBAC. I already knew before I even got to the OR that this is what we needed. This is what I needed. And after that, as our hands slipped apart, I kept my eyes closed. I was bawling. I was crying. I couldn't see what was ahead of me. I couldn't believe that this was really happening. After everything I did to prepare for an unmedicated vaginal birth, I was still ultimately going to end up with a C-section. When my bed stopped moving, my eyes were still closed. Presumably, I was, you know, just inside the OR And the anesthesiologist poked my legs and my abdomen in different spots to see if I had any feeling. And on the right side, I couldn't feel any of it. I had no sensation. On the left side, I could feel every single poke. And the anesthesiologist asked Dr. H if it was okay proceeding with surgery with my current epidural. And in like one second before Dr. H responded, I thought to myself, wait, I'm not comfortable with that (laughs) if my epidural is not working, right? I don't want to feel this. I don't want to feel the surgery. And 
Dr. H agreed with my thoughts that she never heard me say, but she said, nope, we need to put her to sleep. We got to get in there. So immediately the anesthesiologist was pressing this large mask over my face, telling me to take these deep breaths. And I felt my arms being spread out by my sides and I felt cool liquid being poured all over my body. And the next thing I remember is waking up in the PACU recovery room, looking over to my right and seeing Brett holding this little baby wrapped in a blanket, wearing a pink and blue striped hat. And I said, do we have a baby? And Brett replied, yes. (laughs) And I said, is it a boy or a girl? Because we we didn't know. And Brett said, we had a little girl and he brought her over to me. And before I could hold her, before I could take her from him, I felt like I needed to cough. Like, I felt like I needed to cough like phlegm out of my chest. And, you know, being a post-surgical nurse myself, I knew how important it was to cough and take deep breaths after surgery to help, like, you know, aid in a speedy recovery and also prevent post-surgical complications. And I held a pillow over my incision and tried so many times, like over and over to get out of a strong cough. But every time this pathetic, tiny cough emerged and I was so surprised how incredibly painful it was. I just like literally couldn't get my body to cooperate. And it was then (laughs) that I really developed my empathy for the patients that I worked with. Um, because it made sense now. (laughs) It's like, Oh yeah, this is really hard. (laughs) Um, but Brett unwrapped our baby and placed her on my chest for skin to skin. At this point, I didn't mention this. It was actually two hours after she was born. I don't know to this day why it took so long because C-section surgery usually does not take two hours. I don't know. I must have had a hard time coming out of the anesthesia or something. Um, but yeah, it was two, two hours. So we did our skin to skin. She had her eyes wide open. She was looking up at me. It was so surreal. I was so elated and so relieved that she was finally here. And I also, at the same time, felt like a truck had run over me. (laughs) Like, I'd been in labor for 26 hours. And then I had a major abdominal surgery. While I was in the PACU, by the way, (laughs) I realized why the anesthesiologist had asked to look at my mouth prior to placing the epidural. And that's because he wanted to see if there was going to be any problem intubating me in the event that I would need general anesthesia. And I just remember thinking, like, what a crazy freaking realization that was. Because it's like, they know, like, the anesthesiologists know. If you get this epidural, you are you are that much more likely to get a C-section. And, and we need to know if we're, you know, because the anesthesiologist is the one who puts the tube in if needed. So it was just crazy. <laughs> oh, so while I was in the PACU is when I discovered that 
Penny was born, of course, via C-section, just seven minutes after the code alpha was called. So the whole thing went really fast. Um, Brett was not able to be in the OR because I was, of course, under general anesthesia. And just after the baby was born, the staff came out to see Brett or to like give the baby to Brett, basically. Um, And he watched her get weighed and measured and cleaned up. She got to see all, all, he got to see all of that. She weighed seven pounds, seven inches. She was 21 inches long. And it's funny because he told me this funny story that the staff knew that we didn't know the sex of our baby. So they held her up and asked Brett to call out the sex. And he told me he couldn't really tell. He couldn't really like see or tell. And so he asked them to tell him. And then that's when he found out we had a girl. And I just, I just thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> um, and he, you know, then he just held our baby for the next hour until I woke up um, in the back you. Postpartum, I had planned to do skin to skin. You know, the the plan was immediate skin to skin, right? Not two hours after baby was born. But I also wanted to let my baby do the the breast crawl to initiate breastfeeding, which is basically where when you put the newborn baby on a mother's chest, they will instinctively crawl to to the nipple. They'll find it and they'll start drinking milk. And I wanted to do that in the PACU. Well, the PACU nurses, like, again, there's hospital protocols and they were like, you know, it's time to move you to your next room. <laughs> like, cause I was in the, you know, the post-op um, room and I needed to move to my postpartum room, like a different room. And they, you know, they wanted to do all these things. They wanted to take the baby's footprints. They wanted to give her newborn eye medication and vitamin K shot and all these different things. And I just said, I don't want her off my chest. And they were very respectful of that. And they gave her the medications while she was on my chest. And, you know, I, I let I let Penny try to get to the breast for probably about an hour. She took a lot. Of, she would try, and then she would take a lot of rest breaks. Um, eventually, I just thought, well, maybe we kind of missed our window of opportunity for the breast crawl. So let's just get her on the breast because I need. I know she needs to start eating, right? And so my doula helped me, and she latched easily. <laughs> which was really awesome, but she didn't really drink very much. And I remember feeling a little bit stressed about that. Um, I was supposed to only be in the PACU for an hour, but because of all the time that I wanted to spend with my daughter and everything I was trying to do, um, they, they called the nurse manager and basically got an extension. So I was able to be in there for two hours. And I, I really appreciated that. That meant a lot to me. Um, just because, you know, I finally felt heard and, and seen and validated and not, I don't know. I didn't have someone just telling me what was best for me and my baby and somebody who was actually listening and that just felt really good. Really, really good. So... (laughs) 
We didn't name our daughter for over 24 hours of life. We are someone, some, we are people who need time to meet and be with our baby before they get a name. And then we eventually named her Penelope. And it was really interesting because both Brett and I independently decided that like we hadn't shared this with each other yet, that Penelope was a beautiful name and we wanted our daughter to have it. And when I heard that Penelope was the name Brett wanted too, it was just like, oh, this was so meant to be. So it was just, it was really incredible. All right. (laughs) That is the story of my first birth of Penny's birth. Stick around. Keep coming back to hear birth stories from women all over the world. Next week, on Wednesday, December 21st, you'll definitely want to come back for episode number five, my redemptive, empowering home birth after cesarean of my daughter, Amelia Grace. But in the meantime, go binge the next three episodes that have already been released. They are really, really good. I promise. That's our show. And I want to thank you for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, I'd be so grateful if you took a moment to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. If you're looking for help on how to interview midwives, I invite you to grab my free guide, 60 Must Ask Questions for Home Birth Midwives. Just check out the show notes to get it. Thank you to everyone that helps make this show happen. The theme song was written and recorded by Jody Good. I'm your host and producer, Megan R. Cooper. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay fearless.